I think one of the first proposals I had was like, one of the biggest unlocks in your business is going to be to teach your underwriter how to type (laughs) because he types with two fingers and he types about 15 words a minute. If we can give him 50 or 60 words a minute, he's going to be able to evaluate three times as many cases, which is actually your biggest bottleneck right now. Oftentimes when people are starting companies, they think a lot about the business opportunity, but they don't think a couple levels deeper into like what their day-to-day will be like. And one of the things we found is that the number one thing that resonates with people is... And I just very quickly learned the definition of soul-crushing work. Beyond that, I got screamed at a lot. Once I started to realize I hated my job, the seeds sprouting in my mind of what if I quit and what if I move to New York? and just try something completely different. When you look at the benefits, you just see this story that probably most people should be trying psychedelic medicine. It's definitely not for everybody, but based on the evidence, it's probably for most people. My name is Dylan Bynan. I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm the founder and CEO of MindBloom. And what is MindBloom? MindBloom is the largest provider of psychedelic therapy in the United States. We help people with anxiety and depression achieve life-changing outcomes through clinician-prescribed at-home ketamine therapy. And how old are you? 35. 35. All right. And how long have you been doing MindBloom for? I started MindBloom in November of 2018, right after stepping away from my last company, Mighty. Oh, nice. And so could you give us a little bit more insight into MindBloom? Mental health is largely considered the number one public health crisis in the United States today. And suicide and overdose deaths have become the top two leading causes of death for Americans under 45. You see that there are two big reasons. One is the reason that everyone is pretty aware of, which is that there's a huge access issue when it comes to mental health treatments massive shortage of providers, really high costs, one of the least insured specialties. One of the more non-obvious or secret reasons that there's a huge mental health crisis is getting worse is also that our existing treatment options, we might call our legacy treatment options, just aren't getting the job done. So for instance, talk therapy has been clinically shown to be no more effective than a placebo. SSRIs like Lexapro or Prozac are not much, or like Lexapro are not much better. So SSRIs work for about 40 to 47% of people. About 40 to 50% of people have severe side effects from them. They make them intolerable. Things like weight gain, sexual dysfunction, insomnia, sometimes suicidality or severe anxiety. And they take six to eight weeks to work. So people are waiting for them to work for sometimes a couple months just to learn that they're not going to work for them. The mental health crisis is deeply personal and meaningful to me because I grew up in a family that was absolutely obliterated by it. My mother was both schizophrenic and an addict, and my sister was both schizophrenic and an addict. We had a, what I came to learn as I began working in mental health, a pretty typical mental health care journey with them. We tried all the traditional treatments for my mom and then my sister, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, antipsychotics, talk therapy, group therapy, inpatient rehab stints, multiple, but unfortunately, none of those worked for either of them. My mother ended up spending 15 years homeless on the streets before dying of a fentanyl overdose a couple years ago. And my sister was off and on homeless, being sheltered by my dad before dying of a fentanyl overdose last year. Through those experiences, a couple of big things happened that influenced me starting MindBloom. One is that 
I experienced firsthand that mental health issues don't just affect the individual suffering, but it has this massive ripple effect out to the people around them. The second thing that happened is I grew up in a very challenging home. One of the big catalysts for me to help me begin overcoming those issues, becoming the person I am today, was psychedelic medicine. And so for those reasons, after I decided to leave my last company, I really wanted to build something in mental health. So very fortuitously, as I was exploring different ways that I could apply my talents to trying to beat this horrendous mental health crisis, I had a, a few different things happen that helped inspire the start of Mindbloom. One is I'm really fortunate that a few of my lifelong friends have built really meaningful consumer telemedicine companies. One of my fraternity brothers from college, he's the founder and CEO of HIMS. Another, who's now on my board today, founded a company called Candid, which is a big direct-to-consumer Invisalign platform. And so I had a front row seat and a lot of you know, great advice from people seeing how telemedicine had these tremendous benefits to really increasing access to care where people need it most. The second is I was actually at on a little like tech friend retreat talking to one of my really close friends, Justin Mayers, who's a multi-time health and wellness founder. He's built a bunch of category leaders. And I was telling him how I really want to do something mental health, thought psychedelics for the future, but it was a little early. And he blew my mind when he told me that he had actually just experienced psychedelics recently for the first time. Uh, it was very life-changing for him and that he I would essentially write the first $200,000 check into anything I did in the space. <laughs> so I started looking at opportunities, but didn't think there were any. Thought that MDMA therapy was still several years away, psilocybin even further, and then it was just going to be too early unless I wanted to go build like a psilocybin retreat center in Jamaica. I was at lunch with Dr. Andrew Kibbert in New York City, who was my personalized medicine physician when I used to live there. I was telling him all this, and he blew my mind when he told me that he was actually prescribing ketamine therapy through his practice. I remember telling him, there's no way you can do that. I have my finger to the pulse of psychedelic medicine. I've been donating to psychedelic medicine for a long time. And he essentially said, watch me and pulled out his script and wrote me a script for ketamine therapy. The medicine arrived on my doorstep, which was quite the aha moment. And doing ketamine therapy, I was blown away to see that it was just as transformational and meaningful and profound to me as a lot of other psychedelic medicine experiences I'd had over the last 15 plus years at the time. So at the time, I saw that there were a couple big issues with ketamine therapy that we could solve. One is that when I started the company in late 2018, ketamine therapy was extremely hard to access. The average cost of a session was between $600 and $1,000 to go into a clinic and get an injection of ketamine. So one, that's very, very pricey. Uh, and I grew up in a working class family where my father was a mailman and a city bus driver. Uh, and we had a lot of trouble affording mental health care treatments for my mother and my sister. And so the idea of spending you know, upwards of $1,000 a session for a treatment that may or may not work for my mother and my sister was completely out of the question for us. Two, as I mentioned earlier, about 160 million Americans, half of Americans, live outside of mental health care coverage zones. And for something like ketamine clinics, that number is way bigger. And three, there's a huge stigma. So even the idea of using something like psychedelic medicine to cure my mother and my sister's addiction, I think would have been a huge hurdle for my family to overcome. So saw an opportunity to use telemedicine, 
in consumer marketing to reduce the cost of treatment, which we've done over 80% from when I started the company, help a lot more people get access to it in a way that's convenient for them and fits into their lives, which we've done by providing telemedicine to patients in 38 states, reaching 85% of Americans now. And three, build a really strong consumer brand to help destigmatize, reduce the fear, and educate patients and providers on the incredible clinical outcomes and safety and efficacy, which has resulted in us already building by far the number one consumer brand in ketamine therapy and psychedelic therapy. When I started MindBloom, the predominant treatment method was IV ketamine, intravenous ketamine, delivered in mental health care clinics and hospitals, usually by anesthesiologists and ER doctors not even mental health care professionals. And it was what I called ketamine therapy 1.0. So in addition to being very hard to access, you're in a sterile hospital room, you're not working with a mental health provider, you're getting an injection, and 20% of Americans roughly are needle phobic, so that's a big issue. They're usually staring up at some fluorescent light, and you have no psychosocial support around the treatment, which is inherently a, a neuroplastic drug that's creating the conditions for you to change your neurology and change your behavioral patterns. We know that what you do before, during, and after a psychedelic experience dramatically affects the quality of the experience and the quality of outcomes, but most of these providers are not doing anything. So we saw an opportunity to build products and services to help people go through the experience in a way that combines coaching from specialized guides, both one-on-one and in group settings, a lot of different therapeutic content and programs to help them prepare for and write intentions for their experiences, do guided sessions through audio with an eye mask and journal afterwards and between sessions integrate their experiences, as well as build a really robust patient community for people to connect and share about their experiences to help drive better outcomes. The results of all that were that in addition to being able to grow into the largest provider in the country, doing over 300,000 treatment sessions over the last four years, we have also created literally the best clinical outcomes that have ever existed for anxiety and depression. Last summer, along with physicians and researchers from UCSF, NYU, Cleveland Clinic, Houston Methodist, and MAPS, who are running the clinical trials on MDMA therapy, we published the largest ever peer-reviewed clinical study. Uh, We're talking it's working for 63% of patients having a greater than 50% improvement in their depression or anxiety symptoms versus like 40 to 47% from SSRIs, like 40% more frequently, and 20% more frequently than in-person ketamine clinics because of all that psychosocial support and doing it in the home setting versus in a sort of a sterile, uncomfortable clinic. The side effect profile, less than one-tenth as many clients were having side effects from ketamine therapy as SSRIs, and those side effects are a lot lighter, usually like some nausea or grogginess that resolves quickly. And less than 0.3% of clients are having an adverse event. Obviously, feels very low compared to what people think about when they hear at-home ketamine therapy, and it sounds really scary and dangerous, like the clinical data does not add up. So that largest ever clinical study was 1,247 patients. And usually you see these clinical studies in ketamine therapy being around like 20 to 50, 60 patients, so incredibly large. And we're actually currently running a follow-up study that'll be a little bit closer to 10,000 patients looking at outcomes of the last couple of years. Wow. Thank you for the, quite the summary of everything. Yeah, it's funny, right? When you said that, and I'm looking more into your website, I thought of like keeps or hymns or something like that. So it's kind of ketamine treatment for that because if people don't know, you can usually see a doctor through one of those websites, right? Take some pictures of your head if you need something finasteride or whatever else to keep you from your hair loss. But 
same kind of thing that you're doing with mind bloom and for ketamine therapy. They're similar, but there's some key differences. So the the founder and CEO of Hims, I think what he's done to increase access to care, destigmatize, and you know build a really strong brand for treatments that were previously sort of hard to access and embarrassing for a lot of men. I've been a finasteride patient since I was 19 years old. However, whereas Hims looks a little bit more like an online pharmacy where patients might spend seven minutes or even maybe closer to seven seconds with a provider for some of those treatments. We at MindBloom look a little bit more like a robust, comprehensive solution to anxiety and depression built around ketamine therapy. We're on average spending seven hours with every client with both our psychiatrists and psychiatric clinicians providing mental health care support and prescribing, as well as our psychedelic coaches, our guides doing the one-on-one group sessions. We have a, a mobile app that's a lot like Headspace or Calm, but for psychedelic therapy that both allows people to go through the entire treatment journey, but also has a ton of different therapeutic content and programs for different mental health issues. So everything from helping people do the psychedelic therapy modality. So this is like writing and setting intentions before every session, either in their app or in their journal that we ship to them in their bloom box when they start treatment, their welcome kit, to helping them journal the different prompts after their sessions, to a library of guided sessions, because the sessions themselves are about one hour long with an eye shade over your eyes and headphones with different choices for music and sort of spoken word guided sessions for different topics. And then we have and are continuing to build out a library of different programs to help people get the most out of ketamine therapy based on the mental health issues and challenges that they're facing. Not just anxiety and depression, but grief, social anxiety, eating disorder, OCD, PTSD, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, things for like different populations, whether it's LGBT or elderly or veterans. People's mental health journeys are so dynamic. There are so many different challenges people face, so many different inputs into their mental health. And ketamine can help with many of them because they're helping people rewire their neural pathways, which can help them create healthier emotional patterns and behavioral patterns. Yeah, you kind of answered my question. I was going to ask if you have to have anxiety or depression to, I guess, get approved, but there's other ways that you can as well, right? Because I'm seeing like on the website, it's like find relief through brain functioning with ketamine therapy, because sometimes maybe it could just be even a reset. They could still perhaps use MindBloom to see if that would be an option. Right now, ketamine therapy is at least in MindBloom's clinical protocol, which is provided by around 120 psychiatrists and psychiatric clinicians on our platform today not an elective treatment. So patients do need a diagnosis of depression and or anxiety that these providers provide during the consults, which look just like going into a psychiatrist's office, but on Zoom. But it does surprise a lot of people when they come in to see if they're a fit for treatment, that they do have symptoms oftentimes of mild depression or anxiety. Some of these sort of behaviors and patterns that we have have been normalized. So somebody might come in thinking, oh, I don't think I have severe anxiety. I don't think I have like an anxiety disorder. But when they take an anxiety screener scale and talk to a psychiatrist about their anxiety, they find that they don't sleep very well. They ruminate a lot. They're very restless and irritable. And it oftentimes for a lot of people shows up as mild to moderate anxiety. (laughs) And I was one of those people. I think of myself as one of the things that maybe my superpowers is that I don't get extremely anxious or stressed as a founder, whereas I have some other friends who 
really wear it on their sleeve. Friends who've obviously had things like panic attacks and complete breakdowns being founders. But I have pretty bad maintenance insomnia. I'm thinking about work 24 7. I can't turn it off. And when I talk to a psychiatric clinician and learn more about anxiety, it turns out I have a lot of hallmark signs of anxiety, which psychedelic medicine has really helped me with. What's considered anxiety? That way, anyone who's listening now, too, you know? I'll say one more thing to your prior question and answer your, your question around anxiety. One of the things around sort of who Mind Bloom is for, which I think is, is essentially what you asked, that has surprised me most is that I actually thought when we started the company, a lot of our early adopters would be more sort of biohacking folks, people who listen to Tim Ferriss or Peter Atia and are interested in using psychedelic medicine to overcome anxiety, depression, but with a little bit more of like a performance orientation. And I should have known better given that I grew up in a family that was obliterated by mental illness. But the mental health crisis is so bad that there are so many people who have tried so many different treatment options that have utterly failed them for so long that people are really open to you know, new and novel treatments. So like our Mind Bloom, our, our meeting client is 41 years old. We have more clients over the age of 57 than their 20s. For a lot of these people, they've struggled with these issues for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, tried everything under the sun, nothing's worked for them. And this is the first treatment that's really gotten them outcomes in their entire mental health journey. So we often hear things like, you know, this felt like 10 years of therapy, you know, in a few sessions, which when you look at the, the clinical options for therapy makes sense because therapy isn't shown to work for most patients. In terms of anxiety, I think one way to, at a very simple level, think about mood disorders, mental health care issues, is that most of them look somewhat similar. They're ruminative thought disorders where people are caught in these unhealthy neurological patterns that keep repeating themselves over and over. And the more they repeat themselves, the more they repeat themselves, they're positive feedback loops. They feed on each other and people just get sort of ingrained deeper and deeper and deeper. Anxiety looks like a ruminative thought disorder that's fixated on the future. So fixated on worrying about what's going to happen in the future. Like, what if this, what if that, you know, et cetera. Fixated on things people need to do, things that are going to happen to people, things that might happen. There's a Mark Twain quote, I think I'm going to butcher right now, but it's something like, I've known a great many worries, almost none of which have come to pass. That's sort of the basis for anxiety. <laughs> people worrying about things and experiencing pain today for things that may or may not even happen in the future, which is, when you think about it, very maladaptive and unhelpful. Depression, on the other hand, and you know, for people subjectively, that feels like tight constriction in the chest, ruminative fixation on the future, can really like both affect people mentally, but also physically like in the body. For depression, uh, it's inverted. And you can look at all these other mental health care issues that look similar to OCD, PTSD, addictions, eating disorder, even like addictions into certain things like gambling or pornography or social media. People are stuck in these patterns that are really hard to break. What makes ketamine and other psychedelic medicines like MDMA or psilocybin, i.e. magic mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca, seem to be extremely effective for overcoming these issues is that they reopen what's called the critical period for learning. So the critical period is the state of neuroplasticity, where the brain is more easily able to create connections between brain cells. And when you look at like brain imaging studies of people with mental health issues, you see that there are a lot of atrophied connections between brain cells. 
when somebody does a psychedelic medicine, they have this critical period reopen where the brain is much more easily able to create connections between brain cells. And so the brain looks a lot more sort of fertile. It looks a lot healthier, like when you look at brain imaging studies after people do it. And that period stays open for a while. So there's a recent study in Nature that showed that the longer the subjective experience of a psychedelic medicine, the longer that critical period stays open. I think it was something like four weeks for ibogaine, which I think lasts usually like two days when you do it, something like that, 48 hours, three weeks for LSD, which lasts like six to 10 hours, two weeks for LSD and MDMA, which lasts, let's call it like four hours, and about a week for ketamine, which lasts about an hour. And so for that reason, at MindBloom, we have like a six-session protocol where people do six sessions of ketamine therapy with dosages that are titrated up over time to help people dial into the right therapeutic dose for them. And those neuroplastic effects where people are in that neuroplastic window continue to compound. Just giving people that neuroplastic drug, their brain will rewire and they'll sort of get the activation energy to make changes in their life that also help all these neurological pathways that have developed stick. When you help people prepare for these experiences, when you help them get the most out of the actual experience, and then you help them integrate the experience by helping them and supporting them and interpreting what comes up from the experience, figuring out what changes to make in their life, and then making those changes, the benefits compound even further. Listeners, in the digital realm, challenges are plenty, but so are the solutions. Buried by online competition, Elevate with Persist SEO's digital marketing. Are you a small local business feeling dwarfed by industry giants? It's time to stand tall with Persist SEO's Visibility Boost. Inconsistent leads got you down? Well, Persist SEO's website optimization is the game changer you've been waiting for. Cold calls going cold? Your website can be the magnet that attracts clients. Invisible on search engines? Persist SEO can make you the star of Google. Does the maze of Google bureaucracy have you tangled? Well, let the pros at Persist SEO guide you through it. Do you have high acquisition costs? Well, guess what? Persist SEO will fine tune your Google ads for optimal results. The solution to your digital dilemmas is just a call away. Dial 770-580-3736 or visit ineedseo.help for a complimentary website audit and consultation. With Persist SEO, every problem has a digital solution. I think most of us could hear like depression and we kind of understand that, but I don't think we always hear oh, that person's like overly anxious. I mean, just one definition that I kind of heard is like, you're worried about the future, right? If you're anxious and depressed, you're thinking about the past and upset about something in the past that you really can't change. And so what psychedelics can do for people is when they're stuck in these states of depression, anxiety, or other ruminative mood and thought disorders is it physically gives people the feeling that they're no longer in that physical pain. And one of the things that happens when people are in these states of like anxiety, depression is they drift into what you might call like a to me mindset or a victim mindset. So people feel like all these things are happening to them and they have trouble generating the agency and executive functioning and activation energy to try to overcome them. One of the most common things we hear is that people feel stuck. They don't know how to 
get out of bed, or they don't know how to get to work, or they don't know how to make changes in their life. It just seems impossible for them to do that. And so what psychedelics can help people do is remove a lot of those, those physical sensations in the body, put people in this neuroplastic state, and shift them from a to-me mindset into something that looks a little bit more like a by-me mindset, where rather than having an external locus of control that they don't have the agency to change, they now have an internal locus of control where they have some realizations and insights into what changes they want to make. They're now physically and mentally in a position to actually make changes in their life, and they're able to actually go out and do those things, and then they stick, and the brain gets rewired in a healthier way that can persist. An example is after my sister died of a fentanyl overdose late last year, right after getting out of a 90-day inpatient rehab facility, my father, who's my hero, he was in a deep suicidal depression. He could not leave his room, shower, or shave for 20 days straight. So literally incapacitated by depression. He was texting me things like, here are all my passwords, just in case. Here is where all the silver is hidden around our condominium that we grew up in that he still lives in in Anaheim, California. And I had really thought about it and pegged it like a 50-50 chance he survived the next 60 days. As we talked about, suicide is the leading cause of death for Americans under 45, and it's like a top leading cause of death for Americans his age, 65 as well. The upshot was that this was finally the catalyst that he needed to give ketamine therapy, which he did through Mindbloom with our medical director, Dr. Leonardo Vondo, a shot. And after just a few sessions, he was literally transformed. Remission from depression, although obviously still dealing with a lot of grief, and sounded, like when I speak to him on the phone and when I see him, 20 years younger working out again for the first time in a long time, developed personal goals and insights into things he wanted, like things like finding another partner. First time in years, started like reorganizing, decluttering the home and sort of designing it, spending a lot more time with friends and, and his social circle. So for him, that gave him that boost to get out of this state and rewire his brain in a healthier way that has persisted. Well, that's great to hear. And thank you again for sharing that. Because I was probably thinking the way you are, because maybe we're the same mindset of maybe it'd be more of like when I heard about it, maybe it's more of like an entrepreneurial experience and trying to rewire my brain to make sure I'm more effective and efficient. But for your dad or other people, this almost seems easier than even going into inpatient therapy, even if you gave me the stats that it doesn't work. But really, it's like this is so easy for someone that you're like, what you can just go to the website and try it out and see if you could be a candidate for getting over something like that. Cause it seems like you would need some type of experience like that to shake things up, like you said, and kind of like rewire your brain and hopefully get you out of that funk. Yeah. I think in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, I think it was in his book, he used a couple metaphors. One was that for some people, it's about shaking the snow globe. So they have all of this settled down to the bottom that they're buried under. And just by virtue of taking these neuroplastic drugs, you're shaking that snow globe up so that everything can settle in a different way. And so it gives people that sort of jolt. Another analogy, when you think about how your neural pathways develop over time and how they get reinforced through positive feedback loops over time, is the idea that imagine your neural pathways are like a field of snow. And as you experience things and as you think things and have emotional patterns, there are grooves that get carved into the snow like ski tracks. And they get carved deeper and deeper. And the deeper they get, the harder it is to get out of them. And the deeper they get, the deeper and deeper they get. <laughs> and so what a psychedelic experience will do for people when they take these medications is put a new layer of snow over those tracks so that someone can get out of them and create new tracks. Yeah. And if anyone was curious, 
the guy you just referenced, Michael Pollan. It's also on Netflix. So if you're more of a Netflix person, how to change your mind, if you just look that up, maybe write it down now so you can go check it out. Because then you're getting the experience and look into it too. Because I don't think he tried anything till he was like in his 70s or something when he was exploring it. I might be wrong with age, but do you know? I don't know the age, but yeah, that's right. Is one of the reasons he is so credible in this area is because he looks like a lot of our patients where he's somebody who never thought they were going to do psychedelics. Maybe he was around them, kind of understood the science, skeptical, but very later in his life decided to, to try them and had profound experiences and benefits. One of the things we think about is that part of our raison d'etre is to propel psychedelic therapy into the mainstream. That when you look at not just like how pleasant the experiences are for a lot of people, they can be very challenging. When you look at the benefits, you just see the story that probably most people should be trying psychedelic medicine. It's definitely not for everybody, but based on the evidence, it's probably for most people. But there's still so much fear, so much stigma, and that's a massive barrier to patient adoption, provider adoption, et cetera. So one of our sort of pie in the sky theoretical goals is we want every single American to know that there is somebody who looks just like them <laughs> with the exact same problems and challenges with their mental health, who has used ketamine and other psychedelic medicines to achieve the transformational results that they wish they could get in their life. And that's obviously both from a mental health aspect, but also just from a changing behavior you know, aspect. As you pointed out, psychedelics are shown to have great benefits to people, even if it's non-medical, right? It like massively increases neuroplasticity and lateral thinking that helps people have creative and personal, emotional, psychological, ontological, or spiritual breakthroughs that can fundamentally improve people's lives and well-being. And I would say even people who are scared, hopefully just hearing these experiences from older people, because at first they're probably stigmatized of, okay, these are just hippies or people going to festivals, you know, taking this stuff. But there's also just like aspirin or whatever else, there's different dosage sizes that are going to affect you. It's not like, oh, if I take one treatment and I'm taking psilocybin mushrooms and I'm just seeing everything go crazy, you can have one that's going to like, basically not, you're not even going to notice, but maybe you're a little bit happier or something, or, but, or you could go to the full spectrum and take a, a lot larger dosage. So I think whenever anyone has it in their mind of like the stigma, they're always thinking of the worst dosage possible, like the highest amount. And obviously I would think that whoever prescribing this for your patients, that they're not going to start off there, that it's going to be something probably that they slightly notice. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about that for anyone who's a little bit more curious and maybe could be a candidate. There's a concept of micro dosing. So some of that ketamine therapy, you're already taking a dose that's like one twentieth to one fifth of what people take ketamine for as an anesthetic and analgesic. So ketamine was FDA approved in like 1970, so over 50 years ago as an anesthetic. That's actually one of the safest anesthetics, which is why it's on the World Health Organization's list of the 100 most essential medicines in the world. And it's used in every single hospital in ER room in the United States every day. <laughs> There's still like really exciting research on people using microdosing in lieu of, say, other antidepressants to achieve similar and better outcomes to mood, but also things like you know enhanced creativity. I knew you mentioned this earlier, but it was a while ago, so I forgot. Do you only prescribe ketamine for Mind Bloom right now? Yeah, today ketamine 
is the only legally prescribable psychedelic medicine in the United States. As I mentioned, ketamine was FDA approved over 50 years ago as an anesthetic. And so it's a Schedule Three controlled substance. When a drug becomes FDA approved, I believe the FDA and the DEA will schedule it. And Schedule One means a drug has no accepted health benefit and is dangerous. You know, an example would be like MDMA today or methamphetamine today or, or Schedule One. And then it goes Schedule Two, Three, Four, et cetera. Adderall, Schedule Two. Ketamine is Schedule Three. Testosterone therapy is Schedule Three. Because ketamine had this benefit of being discovered as a psychedelic therapy later, after a lot of these psychedelic medicines were sort of improperly scheduled as Schedule One during the Nixon administration, people have been able to actually research it. So it's very hard to research in the United States, which is totally broken in terms of the fact that it's so hard to research those Schedule One drugs, but other drugs are easier. Well, that's very interesting because I was going to ask you, you know, why you went this route versus the other ones. And I think you just explained it there. I didn't hear about ketamine until a few years ago, you know, and I thought it was like crazier than this other stuff. But it sounds like as far as like science and data, or even just hearing the name, but then it's like, now no wonder you're able to kind of get that passed and be able to prescribe that from the patients who need it. But there is a massive pipeline of other psychedelic medicines that we're on the cusp of unlocking. So MDMA assisted therapy completed the last phase of clinical trials recently. The organization, the incredible organization that has been working on that for a long time, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which also has a lot of advocacy work into psychedelic legalization and you know, normalization. They are currently negotiating with the FDA for new drug approval. FDA designated both MDMA therapy and psilocybin-assisted therapy, magic mushrooms, breakthrough therapies a few years ago, which is like a rare designation saying that this is so effective and so important against other treatments that aren't working well enough that we have to fast track this. And the Biden administration also recently put out a statement saying that they had a commitment and priority to get MDMA and psilocybin, I think it was both of them, to patients as quickly as possible, specifically veterans who really need it. And so it looks like that's on target to being FDA approved next year and starting to be deployed to patients, call it end of next year. And psilocybin-assisted therapy is in phase three clinical trials, I believe, right now, and is probably a couple years behind that. And there's a whole pipeline of other psychedelic medicines, including ayahuasca, mescaline, 2CB, ibogaine, and others that are also coming down the pipeline for different clinical indications, which are going to fundamentally transform the behavioral health system. So when those do get approved, and hopefully they do, is it easy for you to add that to the mind bloom opportunities for clients or how, how would that work? Yeah, today, Mind Bloom is the largest provider of ketamine therapy in the US. And I would be wildly disappointed if we were not the largest provider of MDMA therapy in the US as soon as it's released. Okay, nice. Well, yeah, I didn't know that stat. Any other cool it's, it's It's called Mind Bloom, not Ketabloom for a reason. That makes sense. But with you being the number one distributor of ketamine for this type of therapy, how easy will it be able for you to get that FDA approval and be able to do that other stuff? I mean, are we talking five or 10 years, you know, after they approve it? Or you think that's something that can happen quicker? Like, what are your thoughts on that? A gross oversimplification of healthcare <laughs> would be that there are two types of companies that are helping to deliver treatments and medications to people. There are biotech companies who are developing new treatments and getting them through clinical trials into market. 
And then there are care delivery companies who are focused on taking those treatments and delivering care to patients. In our case, we're focused on increasing access to really efficacious treatments that are underutilized, like ketamine therapy, and building adjunct products and services around them to help patients get the best outcomes possible for those treatments. And so MAPS, who's running the MDMA clinical trials, or Compass Pathways, who's doing the psilocybin-assisted therapy clinical trials, they're biotech companies, and they're bringing these drugs to market. As soon as they bring the drugs to market, we're essentially their channel seller as our other providers they might sell into, just like any other pharmaceutical company has pharma reps selling into providers that will then distribute those medications to patients who are eligible. So we don't have to do anything other than applying whatever clinical model most makes sense within the bounds of whatever they agree with the FDA to provide it. What will dictate some of it, this is maybe a little inside baseball, is when pharma companies or biotech companies bring a drug to market, sometimes depending on the drug, they will agree with the FDA to something called REMS or REMS program, R-E-M-S. It's risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. So REMS might dictate how a drug can and cannot be prescribed and distributed. Things like maybe it needs to be in a licensed facility, or maybe it can only be up to this dosage, or maybe it can only be on sort of this timeline. REMS are pretty rare, and drug companies and provider groups really push to have broad REMS because oftentimes how a drug get prescribed changes over time as there's more and more clinical data when it's actually in the wild. Because there's a difference between like lab data that gets run through these small clinical trials and then the mountains of real world evidence, RWE, that actually gets created when a medication or treatment is in the world, <laughs> right? Like Mindbloom's peer review clinical study, you know, that we just ran based on patient population over like, I don't know, several months right when we started and we were still like pretty small is much larger than even like Johnson & Johnson's clinical trials that they did on S-ketamine when they brought a ketamine analog to market. And now we've collected much more data than that. And there's a lot of other providers out there collecting data as well. So how we end up increasing access and helping people get the most out of MDMA therapy will partially be dependent on what those REMS end up being. Okay. So after you finally do get approval, then you have to wait for REMS and then you can kind of figure it out. And thank you for distinguishing the difference you said between a biotech company and then you being like a care delivery company, because that kind of makes sense. I'm always confused as like, do they have scientists on staff or are they trying to persuade the government? Like, like, how are you trying to figure out how you can actually sell this product to help more people? And it sounds like you've chosen the care delivery company. Did you figure that out? I was just going to say, but we also still have scientists on staff and work with the government. <laughs> so we have scientists on staff and we have like a board of like nationally renowned medical advisors, leaders in the field of psychiatry who are helping to make sure that we're collecting really incredible clinical outcomes data, incredible in terms of like the right clinical outcomes data in the right way so that we can demonstrate that the outcomes are incredible and be credible in demonstrating that as well as publishing those clinical outcomes and contributing to the actual academic and medical literature around ketamine and other medicines in the future. And then also, we have gone in and spent a lot of time talking to members of the Senate, Congress, Biden administration, to make sure that they understand how important it is to get safe and efficacious treatments for the mental health crisis to patients who need them and how important increasing access to it is and how big of an access problem we have. And obviously, specifically, how safe and efficacious at-home ketamine therapy is and how important retaining access to that is. So we spent a lot of time with the government, which has showed up in, I think, at least partially influencing 
a lot of the policies that they put forth to make sure that patients and providers will continue to get access to these things. For you personally, is that like the most frustrating part as a founder, like trying to work with Senate or Congress or trying to understand what legislation you can get passed to hopefully help your business and get at the same time, you know, help get this in the hands of more people? I would think it seems like whenever I think of an entrepreneur, it's like almost the exact opposite of a government official. That's the way I've always thought about it. I'm like slow and like can't get anything passed versus like an entrepreneur wants to like do something and have a light bulb moment like when you started Mindbloom. I think one of the big differences is I think if you could make one big change in the government, you would give them KPIs, which they don't have, right? So like this is a tweet a while back that was about how a lot of VCs were scoffing that crypto projects were being funded at massive amounts based on white papers. But like a lot of our government programs are funded on white papers, essentially. <laughs> right. Good call. <laughs> the difference is that they don't ever like bash against the market because they're all funded by money printing, tax revenue. Just there are no KPIs that are being held to. And so failing programs actually end up growing oftentimes in the government, not getting killed. So you know, we've had this proliferation of governments, not just spending, but like ownership, where I think it's something like 20 or 25% of Americans now work for the government directly and indirectly. And indirectly, when you look at like things like contractors, like defense contractors, people in education, that number could look closer to say, I think like 35%. Whereas you know, here, I treat all my leaders like they are portfolio managers, and we talk about this. So like fundamentally, I sold a piece of the company in, to metabolize that into financial capital, and we are taking that financial capital and investing it into human capital, people, technologies, campaigns, vendors, in order to alchemize all that into enterprise value, like value of the business, which is fundamentally saying that we're providing a good and service that's meeting an unmet market need in a way that has some sort of accumulating strategic advantage and defensibility. And things that don't work, investments that don't work, we sell. Investments that do work, we double down. But our government's not really, at this point in time, held to that level of accountability. That's why it keeps growing. I was looking at this, how to change your mind. I still have it up on one of my tabs. Again, if anyone's curious, before even visiting Mindbloom, it's like, just check out these episodes. It's, it's a four-part documentary. This couple. I felt like we're trying to get stuff passed. And it was like, they'd been working for like 30 to 40 years, I think, or something. I'm like, dude, how do you have that wherewithal to like keep trying to push and, and do it? It's just amazing that you have to cut through all that bureaucracy. And that seems like you're the first person I know being able to actually kind of do it. I think what's surprising to some people when they learn about how our government thinks about psychedelic medicine is that psychedelic medicine is like one of the few things that are, is totally nonpartisan everybody essentially is in favor of it. And I think one of the reasons is that everybody knows that we're in a mental health crisis. And they don't just know like intellectually, everybody viscerally understands because they've experienced it. And they can just see the research around psychedelic medicine and understand that this is incredibly exciting. And we've got to drive it forward and give it a shot. Yeah. Well, I think if we maybe we had Hunter Biden use it and then prove that it worked, that'd probably get it passed right away, huh? <laughs> One of the things that has been frustrating, or I would say disheartening, is we'll see people in, say, the psychiatric community or journalists who will write negative things about ketamine or at-home ketamine therapy, and they don't point to any evidence. It's just hand-waving. It's, this seems dangerous. This seems scary. Let's slow down. But when we talk about slowing down, we're literally talking about killing people. So what do you think the number one reason it hasn't already been adopted? Fear. Beer? 
Fear. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I thought you said beer, like B E E R. Well, that, there's, we actually that that's that's an interesting one, right? Right. It could use the dole of pain, right? I guess. So. I don't know. If this is apocryphal or not. There used to be there was this old dare campaign that ecstasy puts holes in your brain. I had heard and read that it was a marketing campaign paid for by alcohol and tobacco. That big alcohol and big tobacco saw that when people took ecstasy at nightclubs in the '80s. They didn't drink. And so <laughs> they put forth and lobbied for let's make let's schedule these things schedule one. It's really interesting that like once an altered state substance gets into a culture or society, it just becomes like the de facto status quo one and everything else becomes evil. And so unfortunately in our society, that has been alcohol. There are these things called drug harm scales where researchers go out and they look at drugs as objectively as possible to see how harmful they are. And there's usually two dimensions: harm to self, harm to others. And alcohol is consistently the number one most harmful drug, even more than heroin, because heroin is a higher harm to self, but people who do heroin don't generally harm others other than, you know, like emotionally. But we just take as a status quo that not only is drinking okay, but like it's kind of not okay not to drink. <laughs> You're socially pressured to drink. And it's going for someone who will enjoy a drink, but it's just interesting that these other altered state substances that are much newer, more advanced technologies than fermented grains. <laughs> have these profound benefits that are very clear to people who take them. Like people take them, have an epiphany, aha moment. I can't believe alcohol is legal and this isn't. Almost every time. But we're still stuck. We're going slow. We need to speed up. Yeah. Well, hopefully we're making that trend. I think you see that with marijuana, right? Even over the last 10 or 15 years, right? So I think that kind of happening, legalizing, opens people's minds up more. And yeah, if you do take those other things, and yeah, I could see why the beer companies would say that because you definitely do consume way less alcohol. So yeah, whatever threat they found to try to persuade the government through regulation or whatnot, then they're going to do it to try to survive. So that is an interesting concept where whoever you're talking about in society, there's kind of one acceptable form of something like that. What was that exactly that you said? Yeah, it's whatever altered state substance is adopted first by a society. The society starts orienting around that with a lot of their rituals and a lot of their social norms, and it almost becomes the sacrament. And then if that's the sacrament, then everything else is you know, the devil. <laughs> and so in our society, we literally have been upside down with like a viewpoint that alcohol good, psychedelics bad when it's, it's upside down. Yeah, and I especially say from the hangovers too, right? I mean, once you start adding all that into it, I mean, when I thought you said beer, but you're saying fear, yeah, people are scared of stuff they don't know. It's just easy to get in that loop, like we're saying, even negative loop, but the negative loop of just drinking alcohol and scared to try other things or scared to go meet other people. So yeah, it does seem like the fear is the one thing holding people back. And hopefully through these documentaries and you just talking about it, and then they can check out your website and you saying your demographics of your patients probably puts a lot of people at ease. For us as like a company, one of the ways that we think of how we're going to propel ketamine therapy in the mainstream while still building like a valuable company is around building a really trusted brand. And we do some things that are, I think, really unique and rigorous. And one of the things we do is we do a lot of research to understand in this space, where's the fear coming from and how do people get there to reduce the fear necessary to consider doing ketamine therapy. And one of the things we found is that I believe it's the number one thing that resonates with people are client stories and testimonials. Is that hearing from somebody you know and trust that this has worked for you and that you've had a good experience as uh, the number one thing that will tip someone over the edge. And so the best would be to hear from someone you know and trust personally, right? So family member, close friend, 
colleague who went through it, who's dealing with your problems, someone you trust. Next might be hearing from somebody else you trust who you don't know personally. And then the third is, which we talked about earlier, is just hearing from people like them. So if you can't hear from someone you know or someone you follow as a thought leader, the next would be you watch How to Change Your Mind and you see the story of somebody who's just like you, dealing with the same problems, with the same fears and anxieties around trying psychedelic medicine, who goes to the experience, has a great experience, gets great outcomes that persist. So what's your number one way of trying to get clients today? We're a largely direct-to-consumer platform. So we use digital media to reach clients and educate them. Things like Instagram and Facebook ads, Google ads, have a lot of partnerships with different mental health care platforms and affiliates and organizations to educate people on their platforms. We get a lot of press here. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> and so can you just tell us like a quick overview of your growth since you started MindBloom as far as the number of clients or number of employees and, and growth over time since you started? So we first launched a pilot clinic in New York City, where I founded the company, where we actually stood it up for 60K in 60 days, which was really exciting, a huge milestone for us, to enable patients to come into the psychedelic clinic for the first couple sessions. And then if they were a good fit for treatment remotely and wanted to do treatment remotely, they could continue treatment remotely. And we thought that we would move to a fully remote model once we proved out the safety and efficacy of continuing treatment remotely after, call it, you know, one to three years. Well, six days later, COVID migrated over here. And at that point, we treated several hundred patients and there were uh, new regulatory structures in place to allow the prescribing of medicines like ketamine therapy remotely. And our providers were really comfortable with it because they'd seen the safety and efficacy and outcomes. So we moved to completely remote right then. And so since launching the company, we've grown the largest provider of ketamine therapy in the U.S., I've done over 300,000 sessions, treatment sessions with people over the past four years, have grown the team from, I believe we're around like eight people when we launched in spring of 2019 to over 350 people today, all over North America, South America, and the Philippines. And as I mentioned, one of our big milestones was publishing last summer, the largest ever clinical study in psychedelic therapy and ketamine therapy history, showing that this product that we've built to help people get the most out of it is helping people get not just the most out of ketamine treatment, but the best anxiety and depression treatment arguably that's ever existed. Do you still wonder who all those people are visiting your website, but never convert and then just disappear? Discover the game-changing tool that top professionals are raving about, Pearl Diver. Pearl Diver is a cutting edge platform that provides in-depth visitor identification, enabling you to uncover valuable insights about your website visitors. By uncovering names, emails, company details, and more, Pearl Diver empowers you to turn anonymous traffic into high quality leads. With Pearl Diver, you'll supercharge your marketing and sales strategy. Don't settle for guesswork. Dive deep into your visitor data and revolutionize your customer acquisition game. Ready to make waves? With Pearl Diver, you see actual people visiting your website. You get to know their names, emails, phones, titles, and company details. Never miss out on the opportunity to engage with your hottest leads. Pearl Diver matches your email interactions with identified website visitors, providing the insights you need to close your next deal. To learn more, visit pearldiver.io. That's P-E-A-R-L diver.io. 
See who's behind those clicks today and learn how to connect with them at pearldiver.io. Hey everybody, we're back with Dylan. We took a short break because we were running low on time and wanted to make sure that Dylan had plenty of opportunity to talk about his experience, you know, in entrepreneurship and where he grew up and everything. We basically had just talked about Mindbloom. And so I'm going to hand it back over to Dylan for here part two. If you could go ahead and just maybe rewind to your story to kind of your origin story. Why don't you tell us where you were born and just take it from there if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks, Austin. I was born in Orange County, California. I was born and raised in a city called Anaheim, right where Disneyland is. So I grew up in a working class family. My father was a mailman and then a city bus driver later. And my mother was disabled by her mental illness. Well, real quick, do you mind me asking, was your mother always having mental illness or like at what point did that start? Yeah, it happened pretty quickly. So I think when my father is actually my adoptive stepfather, I actually didn't know he wasn't my biological father until I was about 10 years old when my family told me. My mother had me, I believe, out of wedlock when she was about 19 years old. And she was very turbulent and sort of chaotic and unreasonable while I was growing up. I think my father has told me that even when I was a baby, when she, he started seeing her, she would just like hand her to me and disappear for sometimes, you know, nights or days at a time. <laughs> As I got older and older through my childhood, she started becoming more and more violent, more and more irrational and angry in a way that was very challenging and, to be honest, quite terrifying as a child. And so for us as a family, you know, I think my father had a, well, he now has come to understand, ineffective strategy or viewpoint around like staying together for the kids. So we kept her in the house, but it went from sort of retreating to my father frequently and just trying to avoid my mother at all costs to my mother being sort of a, a shut-in who would just live in a room and we'd avoid her and have incidents with her. She would disappear sometimes for weeks at a time and we didn't know where she was. She'd just disappear and go on sort of an addiction binge, sometimes come back with strange people in the home. But it definitely created a very tense and frightening environment. And I think through those experiences, one of the things I was able to sort of get lost in or bury myself in was school. I was fortunate to be a good student. I ended up graduating valedictorian of my high school. I was captain of the Science Olympiad team, academic decathlon, <laughs> near perfect SAT score. And I think a big driver for me was that I really wanted to get out. I was the, the first person in my family to go to college by a light year. And I was fortunate that I had a lot of positive encouragement from my loving father, but it was also driven by a, a deep desire to get out of my house and probably escape in an even bigger way, like escape out of California and out of sort of the, the home and place that I grew up in. Curious one more point before you kind of move on to college. Is this the relationship between your dad there and your mom? I mean, was it almost just like roommates that there wasn't really much of a relationship at all? And that I was just curious how that worked out. I think to me today, it seems very odd. My dad just had a viewpoint that he should stay together for the kids. And because of that, he kept her in the house. When I was a kid, I was begging him to divorce my mother for a long time and to get her out of the house. We actually had sort of an incident that, that brought it to a head. It was one of the things I wrote my college entrance essay on. I was at football practice and I played football for 12 years. I was like MVP in my team several years, captain a lot of my teams. And 
the police came out. I turned to one of my teammates who was casually selling weed at the time and told him that he should start running now. And the police came out, they started talking to the coaches. The coaches looked perplexed. They looked over at me and they waved me over, which surprised me to say the least. And when I came over, the police turned me around, they cuffed me, and they took me back to the police station. (laughs) They told me that I was in a lot of trouble because I had violently run my mother over with our family car and that she was in the hospital. I had not run my mother over with the family car. She was not in the hospital. She was just in like a you know, schizophrenic haze and called the police and made up a story for whatever reason. You know, I told the police they needed to get a hold of my dad. They couldn't. And I was there for hours and hours getting really berated by the detectives, like told I was a liar, you know, told I was abusive, told they see this all the time. And so when my, they finally got a hold of my father, he told them that my mother was severely mentally ill. And none of that was true. And I was released. And that was a big catalyst to us deciding that this was getting too violent and too chaotic. And that was the start of them decoupling. Uh, and then she was you know, homeless a couple of years after that. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, yeah, it sounds pretty fucking traumatic, especially if you're like in high school and police are calling you liars. And I can only imagine. I mean, we're all trying to imagine, but that's even hard to think of that that's like real life. Yeah. I often get asked, I have a little red scar right below my neck on my sternum. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the place where anytime I wear a V-neck, you can't help but see it. So people frequently ask me where I got this interesting little sort of star-shaped red scar. And it's from when I was in about middle school, my mother stabbed me with a butter knife in the chest for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> so there are a lot of like incidents like that that just kind of compounded. I mean, I was, I was fortunate that I was a football player and she's a small Jewish woman. So at a relatively young age, I was no longer like physically afraid of her, but I was when I was a child. But it did create a lot of chaos. And I, I think what it also did, which I only came to understand later, was fundamentally program me in some ways for how I thought about my relationship to other people, probably a lot of emotional and behavioral patterns. So I you know, was a little violent myself. I used to get into fistfights and scraps. I used to be very angry, a lot of yelling, like very quick to treat people poorly, very pessimistic, very negative, a little antisocial. And maybe that's just part of natural development of being an adolescent into an adult. But I think growing up in that sort of environment probably was a key driver for that as well. But how does like a guy like you looking back, I mean, you say you want to get out and stuff, but I think a lot of people think that, but then they don't get like the great grades like you're getting and stuff like that. I mean, was there something else driving you? I mean, to again, especially just educationally wise, I, I could see the motivation to get out just based on what you're saying. And maybe you just even want to get it a job and move out at 16, right? But to get like perfect SAT scores almost and get a scholarship to college and be number one in your high school class, how did that happen? I think I was, I was fortunate that, well, I mean, one way it happened was I was born in the United States of America in 1988, born in a time and place that's very rare throughout human history in the world where we have a ton of social mobility. And I had these structures around me where if I worked really hard and applied some of the talents that I was fortunate enough to be born with and cultivate that, you know, I'd have a lot of opportunity. So yeah, I went to like a down the fairway average public high school. Actually, I recently was interviewing somebody for a, a VP of product role at Mindbloom. And on their LinkedIn, they had uh, that they were a salutatorian at the number one ranked US News public high school. So I looked mine up and I was like, oh, that's cool. I was the valedictorian at the number 3,995th ranked <laughs> public high school in the United States of America. And so I was just able to throw myself into it. 
I was a savage in high school and even middle school. I probably slept four or five hours a night. You know, I played football, basketball, track and field. Like I mentioned, Science Olympiad, academic decathlon. I didn't just take extra classes, like zero period before school. I even like started and created some of my own classes. Like I taught, created and taught AP Computer Science, all just to boost my GPA so I could be valedictorian. But I think that had a lot of like downstream consequences. Once I got to college, I felt really lost. My goal was to get into a great school. And once I got into a great school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. When I got to college, I actually started studying independently a lot of behavioral psychology, cognitive science, evolutionary biology, really starting to get interested in learning about the mind and people and how people interact and how societies organize. As I started studying that, I stumbled upon positive psychology as a new and developing field. Where I was going to college, serendipitously was actually one of the places that it was birthed. And this is the study of happiness and what makes people happy and what doesn't. As I started learning about positive psychology, I very quickly started learning that the way that I was approaching my goals, the way I was approaching living my life, the way my relationships were set up, the sort of anger I had, uh, these were all like losing strategies you know, based on all the evidence to be a happy person. And I was sort of brought face to face with the fact that I was not on a path that was going to make me happy. And it was, you know, my head, my goal was to be happy. And then all the things I was doing to try to achieve and succeeding at those, you know, good stepping stones, but they weren't going to get me there. And that was the thing that really helped lead me to considering trying MDMA was sort of learning about positive psychology, learning about my maladaptive strategies and realizing that I needed to make some big changes because how I was going through the world with a lot of enemies, a lot of anger, a lot of pessimism, a lot of getting in fights, these weren't things that were going to get me to where I wanted to go in life. So when you said you took MDMA in college, was that just like at a party or were you like seeking it out based on your research and like, hey, let me just give this a try, see if it does what I'm hoping it will? Yeah, I had the opportunity while I was traveling abroad and on like a study abroad program and decided to take it. You hear that psychedelic experiences are life-changing and unless you've experienced it yourself, it's hard to take that seriously, but it truly was life-changing for me. For the first time in really probably my entire life, I felt this deep sense of openness and connection to everybody around me. This sense of like openness and curiosity about people versus like a pessimistic judgment towards every single person. This is like really embarrassing to admit before that experience. So in my teens in college, I had sort of a viewpoint that I came to realize where if I met somebody, my immediate reaction was that I did not like this person, that I was probably better than this person, that they would need to earn my acceptance, which most people were not going to be able to do. You can imagine just results in a lot of negative adversarial relationships with people and not a whole lot of really close relationships. After taking MDMA, it helped rewire those toxic patterns and behaviors, which are also just like losing strategies. We're just talking about like, this isn't going to make you happy and this isn't going to get you where you want to go or really where anybody wants to go. Very quickly, I started this journey of becoming somebody who liked other human beings, wanted to meet them, wanted to get along with them. And if it wasn't for taking that first dose of MDMA, which ended up helping lead me to 
more studies of positive psychology, more psychedelic therapy experiences, you know, eventually meditation, trying to build up my social intelligence and understand like how to interact with people effectively and how to understand how to build positive and healthy relationships, even reading books like How to Win Friends and Influence People. If it wasn't for that first MDMA, just like I, I don't know if I would ever would have had that catalyst to make that one of my non-negotiable top priorities in life to prioritize my relationships with other people and the world. Well, you said you were studying abroad. Could you give us a more specific location? And I'm just curious because if it's no. such, if it's <laughs> no, so- no, 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 I can't. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> I really can't tell if you're joking or not. No, no, I'm, I just, I'm not going to give specifics. Well, but here's this. I, I mean, were you like at a party at a club or were you like trying to do something similar to what you do? Were you in like a ayahuasca retreat kind of thing, you know, where they're, uh, dude, that's what I'm asking. It's like, yeah. What was it like? Did you go in with that or was it like, hey, I've been drinking some and someone had some MDMA? I took that and that was life changing. That's what I'm saying. It was more intentional than that. I had read and thought about how to take it, what it was going to do to me, how to do it safely. However, I definitely did not do it in a therapeutic environment facilitated by people who are going to help me heal and grow. I didn't even know that that existed for many years. (laughs) In fact, Throughout my psychedelic medicine journey, starting with MDMA and then other psychedelics like psilocybin, I sort of independently developed different practices around writing what I wanted to explore or how I wanted to grow ahead of time. What I came to learn was called setting intentions, journaling during and afterwards. And I'm not a journaler and never have been. So that was very interesting and fascinating to me that I felt compelled to journal while on these psychedelic medicines and afterwards taking the things that I had learned and sharing them with other people and discussing our experiences, things that in mind blowing we call like an, an integration circle where people are sharing about their experiences, and then really developing like an action plan for here are the insights I had, here's what they mean to me, and here's what I want to do next about them. And so I was doing this practice independently and sharing that practice with a lot of other people who were also exploring psychedelic medicine with me. And years later, I started to learn that these were practices that were part of the psychedelic therapy modality. So for my first experiences, you know, I did them very independently without a lot of knowledge or education other than some cursory things I found online. And I got really lucky. Other people don't get so lucky. They could take the wrong medicine with the wrong people in the wrong setting, you know, whether on, say, like you mentioned, alcohol and get into like a really rough spot. And for people who aren't in the right setting or they don't have the right support, they can have a traumatic experience. Well, after, again, this first experience, and you said you felt like a transformation, was it like you were studying abroad and you just started doing it a lot? Or did you take a while to think about it? I'm just curious, kind of like, what's the timeline for the rest of college and the psychedelic experiences? Yeah. So once I had that experience, if I was going to identify it, if you think of a spectrum from like pessimist to optimist, or a spectrum of like, doesn't like other people to likes other people, I went from very heavily on the pessimist, doesn't like other people side, like all the way, like on the pole, to tipping over into the optimist, likes other people side, which is a massive swing. I mean, it's a fundamental change in like my personality in a very positive way. And if I had just left it there, probably I would have like slipped back into these old, you know, habits and behavioral patterns, but I didn't leave it there. That inspired for me 
this deep need or desire to continue that journey and to continue learning about how to be happy, learning about how to have positive relationships with other people, and exploring psychedelic medicines. So I continued to explore MDMA. I started to explore other psychedelics, including psilocybin, eventually LSD, eventually ayahuasca, and a lot of other neuroplastic agents. And throughout those experiences, I continued to push further and further on the optimist and liking and relating well to others' spectrum until I sort of got to where I'm at today, which is, I would say, pretty far on the other pole. I mean, can you tell why? I mean, now that you know all this research and whatnot, or looking back of why it had this transition, and I don't know if that actually like happens to more people or, or what have you found in your studies and understanding this experience and maybe what others have? Well, I think the importance of relationships is a very common motif for a lot of people when they have a psychedelic medicine experience. So when you have a psychedelic experience, you enter the state of neuroplasticity where your brain is more easily able to create healthier neural pathways and connections. They'll then show up in healthier emotional patterns and behavioral patterns. And during the experience, oftentimes people feel like they have like fundamental truths revealed to them because a lot of these old patterns start breaking down. There's this concept of transient hypofrontality, which essentially means that when you take some of these medicines, your prefrontal cortex, so like the really thinking part of your brain can kind of dim and shut down. And then that causes the rest of your brain to have sort of an explosion of activity. And the pathways that existed before, your brain has to find new pathways throughout that experience. That's why a lot of people feel like they have these profound feelings of creativity and insight. But throughout those feelings of creativity and insight, oftentimes people feel like these things that they're experiencing are very, very fundamentally true. And so I think for someone like me, where their relationships with other people were very broken in a lot of ways, it was sensible that that would be one of the core things that would come to the forefront for me and would sort of have an epiphany and see the light on different ways that they could be. It's also probably why MDMA, I was very fortunate that MDMA was the first psychedelic medicine I did, because I think it would have been the perfect one for me, given the issues that I was having. MDMA causes the brain to sort of release a massive dose of serotonin across the synapse. And so when that happens, people subjectively often have these really intense feelings, not just of bliss and euphoria, but really of like love and connection. So it's a sort of an, an empathogen and then it helps people feel really connected to other people, really open-hearted. And as an open-hearted, as in like people feel in their chest, their chest opens up. And you can think of the opposite as anxiety, where your chest feels really constricted and tightened. When you do MDMA, it's the, like the opposite of anxiety. It feels really sort of open and wide. And those are the, the feelings that happen to people in their body. And so people just feel like a much deeper sense of ease with other people and the ability to connect and understand other people and really engage with sort of ideas and material that can be difficult to engage with when the ego is like clamping it down. So for that, that's one of the reasons that's so effective for PTSD is people have so much clamped down with their trauma that anytime their trauma comes up or they're faced with it, their body goes into like shock, right? It's not just that their ego can't handle thinking about it. Like if we start talking about somebody's like weaknesses or flaws, it's that like they literally have a neurological reaction that then shows up as a physical reaction that they really can't engage with the trauma. But when people do MDMA, they have that dampening of the ego 
and they're more easily able to actually engage with that trauma and then rewire and get through it. After, like you said, you started experiencing this and doing this, how did the rest of that college work out? Did you come back to whatever university you were at and then just kind of walk us through graduating? I'd say college worked out pretty well. I'm not a huge proponent of college from an academic standpoint. I don't know that I got a lot out of going to the Wharton Business School, University of Pennsylvania in terms of education. I don't know that anybody should really be studying business as an undergrad when you have never worked in a business, or at least I hadn't. There's not a whole lot of context there. So I skipped about half my classes to stay home and read and to go out and meet. So I spent a lot of my time with my fraternity brothers in college, many of which are still lifelong best friends, some of which work for me, some of which are on my board <laughs> of directors today, some of which were major inspirations for starting Mindbloom, like the founder and CEO at Hims and Hers is a fraternity brother from college. And so these are people who were probably largely more developed and mature than me. And I had a lot to learn from intellectually, but also called psychologically and emotionally, which I could sense and spend a lot of time with them. I also, at that time, wanted to spend a lot of my time in college meeting girls. And so I skipped a lot of classes to do that. And I'd say that worked out pretty well because I met my, a girlfriend at the time who is now my wife, who I've been with for 14 years and is also the head of engineering here at Mindbloom. So from the sort of social standpoint and from the opportunity to self-educate myself through reading standpoint, college was tremendous. From a learning business standpoint, I think you can read the top three business books across like several disciplines and learn more than you get going to the best undergraduate business school in the country. And so as you graduated, did you come out and start a business or did you land a job? Just kind of walk us through the years of that. So Warren at the time mostly shuttled everybody into either investment banking or consulting. So think investment banking at Goldman Sachs or consulting at McKinsey or BCG, Boston Consulting Group. I kept hearing all my fraternity brothers coming back from these jobs saying that they were miserable. Uh, and from studying positive psychology and learning that it didn't take a lot of money to reach sort of a top level of happiness and everything after that seemed to not really inflect how happy people are. And from a viewpoint that like I didn't work so hard to get to a top school as the first person in my family to go to college to then work a job that I hate. <laughs> I had, a, and maybe I have a little bit from growing up with the mentally ill mother of an anti-authority bent where I'm more likely to do something that's a little contrarian and not just what other people are doing. So I sort of refused to go down that path. I thought at the time that I didn't love living on the East Coast and so wanted to move to Los Angeles, not quite Orange County where I grew up in, but still California. I think I still thought of myself as a Californian at that time. Living in Los Angeles, the largest industry is entertainment. So I started studying entertainment, reading books, and learned that working at a talent agency, so think CAA, UTA, or WME, top three talent agencies, is like getting an MBA, but for working entertainment. So I applied to internships at CAA and UTA, got offered internships at both, ended up taking an internship at UTA because I liked their program better, it was more structured, showed up to the program for a summer, and it was extremely glamorous. You worked in the mailroom, you met with all the agents and all the departments, you met celebrities. Also, in the internship, I think there were 20 interns, and I was the only one who wasn't the child of another agent or director or something. And so they had like pulled me aside and said that they really wanted to like groom me to be an agent if I came and worked for them, which maybe they told everybody, I don't know. <laughs> and so I was really enamored with the idea 
of working in entertainment and building my career there. And I think I was also enamored with the idea of doing things my own way and not just going down the path that all my friends were going in out of college into banking and consulting and doing something more sort of unique and true to me. Yeah. What is a talent agency? So talent agencies are firms that help people in the entertainment agencies get placed into jobs. So the big talent agencies like CAA, Creative Artist Agency, WME, and UTA, United Talent Agency, represent like a massive amount of talent in Hollywood. This is movie stars, TV stars, writers, directors, cinematographers. And these agencies are so big, they're very full service. They have booking agents for comedians, endorsement agents to do endorsement deals. So for example, when I came back and worked at UTA, I think a good analog is if anyone's seen Entourage, the show that used to be, I think, on HBO, Ari Gold was a talent agent. So he represented Vinny Chase, one of the characters, to place him into movies and takes you know, a, a cut of anything that the actor makes. So some of my clients that the agent I worked for represented when I worked as his assistant agent in training were Kevin Hart, Owen Wilson, Paul Walker, right before he died, Martin Lawrence ton of different comedians who are on all kinds of different shows and films. And a lot of people come to the agency world, they work as an assistant to a big agent for a few years. Very few of them continue moving up within the agency world to become an agent. And then most of them sort of move into different areas of the entertainment industry. I think you go work at a studio and as becoming a producer, they could go work as a developmental exec, it's helping to you know, create different shows or programs sort of a lot of different directions, but sort of consider that that's like where you go to get your education on entertainment if you're able to get that job. And so how long did you work at the UTA and where'd you go from there? I worked there nine months and that was nine months too long. It was truly a miserable experience. <laughs> when did you figure it out it was miserable? Like a week one or, or how long did it take? When I interned there for a summer, it was incredible. Every week we like met with different departments and the agents came in, they pitched you on their department. Then you meet with, say, Tracy Jacobs, who's one of like the founding partners at UTA who represents like Johnny Depp, right? And she tells you her story. And when I came back to work there after college, I was no longer being sold as an intern to come work there. I was just working there. <laughs> and I, I quickly got sort of onto the desk as an assistant of a large talent agent there who did film talent. And I just very quickly learned the definition of soul-crushing work. I think I made, I think it was $10 an hour and I'm getting a raise to $11 an hour. And I was flat broke coming out of college. I was lucky I didn't graduate debt because I received a full scholarship. Beyond that, I got screamed at a lot for seemingly no reason. It is like still one of those industries. And I think they've had to try to clean this up over the last several years, as some people have brought it to light, where you have some really strong personalities. Maybe that's a euphemism. Maybe you have some really toxic sick people who literally scream at their employees. I mean, things that like if I did 10% of what was done to me today, a few times to anybody on my team, it would be like a massive, massive problem. But in that industry, it just flies, or at least it did when I worked there called 15 years ago. The work was very tedious, monotonous. And very quickly, I realized that what I was spending my life force on every day was trying to get one actor a job instead of a different actor and like who cares <laughs> like if kevin hart gets this role versus another actor gets this role that's great for him maybe it's good for the audience maybe it's not i don't know but what am i really doing here 
Like, how is this helping to create a meaningful value for society? I used to go into my car at lunch and put a towel over my head and set my alarm. And when the alarm went off, my heart would like sink down into my stomach because I was so upset I was going to have to go back into work. (laughs) So yeah, I was was working there. I was actually long distance with my girlfriend, now my wife. She was in New York City working as a software engineer at Goldman Sachs, and I was in LA. She was visiting me every few weeks, but once I started to realize I hated my job, the seed sprouting in my mind of what if I quit and what if I moved to New York where my girlfriend, who I'm in love with, and all of my friends from college are and are continuing to move and just try something completely different. That started to sort of sprout and take hold. So I you know, quit and while flat broke, moved to New York City and in with my girlfriend to try to figure out what to do next. And what'd you do next? What happened next was I got really, really, really lucky. I did not know that tech startups existed you know, when I was 23 years old at this point. I mean, that's changed a lot. But back then, so this was like 2011, tech was still pretty, I'll say underground, but it was not like a widely discussed and talked about industry like it is today. I think the people who out of college went into tech were people who tended to already come from Northern California and know about it, but you didn't see a whole lot of other people going into it. People from where I went to school were mostly going into finance or consulting at the time. So most of my friends from college were essentially bankers, lawyers, or doctors. (laughs) When I was completely lost trying to figure out what to do next, I thought maybe I would capitulate and just go into consulting. And so I reached out to some of my fraternity brothers from college who were a little older just to get advice on how can I break into consulting. One of my fraternity brothers connected me to another one of our fraternity brothers who I wasn't planning on speaking to. Uh, His name's Healy Cipher. He's currently the COO at Atomic, which is probably the number one startup studio that incubates and builds their own startups. He had worked in consulting, but had transitioned into tech startups, which I didn't know. And so I was talking to Healy about consulting and he was asking me questions and hearing about my path and my interests. And he just like cut me off and was like, you're not a consulting guy. I was like, oh, I'm not? He's like, no, no, you're, you're a tech startup guy. And I was like, well, what's a tech startup? <laughs> and so he introduced me to a bunch of people in New York who then introduced me to other people in New York, which led me to my first job working at my first tech startup. It was a company called Hotlist, where I joined as in no role in particular. I think one of my first jobs was to make business cards. And I put businessman as my title on my business card at like the age of 23, which everyone thought was hilarious. Just goes to show that there was no particular role that I was hired into. They just wanted me to come in and try to help them with stuff. I think I got an offer making $50,000 a year at that time. And I was so stoked because it was so much higher than $10 an hour working entertainment. <laughs> the company was a geosocial aggregator, essentially like a Foursquare competitor that pulled in a lot of Facebook data to give people accurate maps of like what's going on around them, events, pictures of all the people going to the events to help people figure out like what to do and where to go. But at that time, right when I joined, Facebook changed the way that it was allowing people to ingest that data and cut off a lot of these APIs that kind of made the company FUBAR, like fucked up beyond all repair. So as the company was, was winding down, I was trying to figure out what to do next Okay. And it was winding down because they didn't have access to the data that Facebook used to give them. And that's what your whole hot list was built on, was the opportunity to use that data. But once Facebook said no, basically hot list was going to not work out anymore. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it was a a social network, right? And so social network needs to go 
exponential in terms of growth to continue raising money and eventually monetize. And very few make it. At the time, there was a craze around, I think it was called Solo Mo, Social Local Mobile. Foursquare was one of the big Solo Mo companies. It was social, it was local, it was on, it was on your mobile phone, which was really the mobile app stores proliferating around this time. And so Hotlist had raised, I think, $4 million. We'd gotten to about half a million users ingesting millions and millions and millions of data points on people. Because at the time, if you signed up for Hotlist, we didn't just get your data, we got all of your friends' data, which is what the, the thing that they cut off. <laughs> so at the time, when, once they cut off that API, the growth of the platform you know, completely halted and the company wasn't going exponential. And so you know, there's no more access to capital because we didn't have product market fit. I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin, doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? Yeah. You know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food. And yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchise or a franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay us a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustler, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't get their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchise, and we've gotten great feedback since its release. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few calls with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. Because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market. They're available that check all the boxes and we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N bridgeconsulting.com. And uh, we would love to engage. Okay, so where did the businessman end up next? By the way, I totally I hadn't thought about the fact that I had businessman on my cards for years. I totally forgot about that. People loved it. That was also very symbolic for me, being able to put businessman on my card because my top three personal core values are wisdom, freedom, and fun. I want to both create the biggest contribution back to the tribe, to society, to humans I can, but I also, like life is short and I only get probably one bite of the apple. 
And so I want to also squeeze every drop of fun that I can out of this infinitesimally short life that I can. And I think having fun and like being serious at work is a false choice. Like you can do both. And so I was still developing these viewpoints, but at the talent agency, like fun was not allowed. People were very serious. In fact, if you smile, you get like yelled at. What's so funny? This is serious. And working at a tech startup, people are having fun. They're working really, really hard. They're really smart. It's really serious. People are intense, but people are having fun. And so being able to ask and then everyone laughing at me, like, yeah, that's funny. You should put businessman on your car because we don't know what you really do here either. You don't have a role. That was a symbol that this is an industry where we can, I can do the best work of my life that really fits me. That could be in my ikigai of things that I love doing, that I'm really good at doing, that the world needs and that can compensate me and I can have fun doing it. Well, maybe you should have switched your title at Mindbloom because I just see founder CEO right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's important to have the CEO title when you're interviewing people <laughs> so, so they know that they're going to be working for the, the CEO. Okay. Or you could, put, yeah, maybe slash psychedelic man or slash businessman. You could put a lot of slashes, right? Yeah. It'd be like, a, what is it? Like a battle mage. <laughs> yeah. Whatever works. Well, it's just funny because you said you had forgotten about businessman, and then it's funny if you could like, run it back. But I understand also the op- you have to look somewhat professional when you're talking to government officials and scientists. <laughs> so. Yeah, might have to be a business person now. The times times were different back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after Hotlist, where'd you go? While I was at Hotlist, one of my best friends from high school, his roommate that he found off of Craigslist in New York City at the time, is this guy Dan McLean. And at the time, as I was getting to know him, meeting people in New York, him and I just kept chatting about tech startups. And he was building a company called Voters Friend that was designed to help people become an informed voter in 10 minutes or less. Essentially, if you go in to vote, no matter how much research, at least at the time that you did online, you're going to get in to submit your ballot and find that you did hours and hours of research and you don't recognize 90% of the people on your ballot. (laughs) So who are these people? Where do they come from? What are they about? And so generally, people just kind of like will vote like the party line without even looking at the candidates. I remember we had some stat at the time, which was something like 40% of political candidates who get indicted on like a crime end up getting reelected. People don't even know that they got like indicted on this crime. He saw an opportunity to really help empower better information for voters and better access for candidates to voters, especially at the local level, so that we could create sort of a bottoms up better political system by having the best candidates at the local level get elected and rise up faster. And when I told him I wanted to leave Hollis, he essentially proposed that I come aboard as his co-founder, lead growth, and work on product with him because he thought I had the best ideas that he had heard of anybody he was meeting and talking with you know, about his company and really liked the collaboration that we had had just informally as friends. So I decided to come on and join because I'd experienced the same problem and pain point he did. And so how long were you at Voters for him? The problem with Voters Friend is that it's a good platform that should exist, but it's not a good business that can make money. (laughs) That was a big lesson learned from building Voters Friend. We built it for nearly two years. We ended up signing up something like, I think it was like a third of all of the political candidates in the country to the platform. We built up a very large offshore team to take all the data that we essentially scraped that Dan had built these really incredible scraping technologies to scrape candidate data from all over the web. And then I built an offshore team that would then clean and structure the data and put it into our content management system. Then I would go to Starbucks next door, since I live in a 
tiny little dank apartment in Manhattan, you know, with my now wife. <laughs> I'd go next door to Starbucks and spend like six hours at a time, like straight, chugging cold brews and editing, cleaning up all the data that would be presented to voters and candidates. And then we figured out that political candidates are a little potentially uh, narcissistic <laughs> and they Google themselves quite a bit. And so we figured out that we could run like one cent search ads on Google that targeted people so that when they searched their own name, they saw they had this profile and discovered that if I told people in the search ad that their opponent had signed up on Voters Friend, they were very likely to sign up as well, especially if when they clicked that link, it showed a side-by-side -side comparison where their opponent's profile had a very high quality and high resolution image. And if their image was very grainy in low resolution. <laughs> so we built a really great growth hack where uh, we would intentionally build pages where when you clicked on the page from your search ad, you would have a very shitty picture and your opponent would have a great picture. And that was guaranteed to get people to sign up essentially. <laughs> So we got like a third of all the political candidates in all the places we were live signed up in the country. I think we had a couple hundred thousand users on the platform. We built a lot of really cool features to help people like engage with those candidates. But very quickly, I became disillusioned meeting hundreds of local political candidates into thinking that this was not going to improve the political system. These were not like going to be long-term serious candidates at like the state or, or national level. The local politicians stay local, that this wasn't going to be a viable business. So we decided to get acquired by a company called democracy.com, which was building the big LinkedIn for politics and had raised a fairly considerable amount of money. So they wanted our technology, they wanted our users and our candidates, and Dan went over to lead engineering for them, and I left to start my next company. Okay. And by your next company, this is actually the first one that you're actually starting, right? That's right. Yeah. So I joined Dan as co-founder for something he had already ideated and started. And then my next company, Mighty, I actually was going to move to Brazil with about 10 friends. Including your girlfriend? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to, I have a friend from college, similar to me zagging in a different direction than all of our friends, but maybe 10 times further. He was Wharton, Blackstone Restructuring, which is like the number one finance job people get out of undergrad. That's, you know, that's sort of sought after. And he sort of broke out of the matrix and decided to quit to become a pickup artist to teach other guys how to pick up girls. And so him and his best friend from high school who he was doing this business with, it's called Kick-Ass Academy, his name is Ben Altman, decided to move to Brazil where they're going to build this online pickup artist business. Ultimately, they realized that that was a little too narrow. And so they pivoted the business into Charisma. It's called Charisma on Command, and they crush it. They've been running for like 10 years. They have like six or seven million YouTube subscribers and they've never had to build a second course and they do extremely well. <laughs> so he, he told me they were going to move down to Brazil. And I remember telling him, oh, that's so cool. I would love to do that. He was like, well, why don't you move down to Rio with us? I was like, well, I can't move to Rio. He's like, why not? He's like, well, because, well, I can't because, oh, I, I guess I could. <laughs> yeah, because at this point where you out of a job at Voters Friend as well? Or was it kind of like the writing was on the wall? So this point I was left and I was figuring out what to do next, or I was about to leave, but the writing was on the wall. My co-founder already talked about it and we were looking to figure out what to do next with it. Yeah. And so I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. My wife, Allie and I had already agreed on like a barbell strategy. She was my girlfriend at the time, a barbell strategy where 
she was going to work as a software engineer and make a great six-figure salary, continue moving up in software engineering and becoming a manager, director, and you know, now she's a VP of engineering here at Mindbloom. And I was going to take a much higher convexity, riskier path to be a tech founder and maybe it'd work out, maybe it wouldn't, but we'd have like a you know, floor financially. And if I was able to hit something, the ceiling would be much higher in a way that would fundamentally change our ability to do things. Okay. So then when you talked about the strategy or you're like, let's go to Brazil and implement the strategy? I already had that strategy once I started Voters Friend. It was more like, so here's the strategy. So we're going to have a shared accounts or shared credit cards, and you're going to pay for 80% of everything and be my sugar mama. I actually convinced her to quit. So that maybe this is anti the strategy. I convinced her to quit her. I proposed and she decided to, you know, she's her own person, but she decided to quit her job at Goldman Sachs to take some time off in a sabbatical and come down to Brazil. So we went with about 10 friends. We had two different houses. Ours was in Ipanema in Rio. Our other friends was in Copacabana. And we ended up being there six months from Carnival through the World Cup. But right before I left for Brazil, I was looking for just some consulting work, something to do to pass the time and earn a little bit of money since I was broke. And I got introduced through one of my friends from college to another friend of his from college who had worked for what ended up becoming my co-founder of my last company, Mighty, which has been around for 10 years now. So my co-founder, Josh, at the time, he had built a tech startup that had just gotten acquired with an okay outcome, but not you know, life-changing for him. And he had started a litigation finance company where he was doing these really interesting alternative investments to help people who had been injured in car accidents, construction accidents, medical accidents, accelerate the ability to get some liquidity from their eventual payout from their legal claims. So a lot of people get injured. It's going to take years for them to settle. If they're like my family, where they're in the 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, being injured and out of work and having to wait like two, three, four years to get your settlement is really, really hard. And it's really, really expensive to be poor. And they end up making worse decisions about their cases. So these companies are providing liquidity. But early on in the industry, a lot of them, depending on the rates, could look like a little sharky. Looks at it kind of like payday lending, even though payday lending can put people into like irreparable debt that's very hard to get out of, whereas this is like a non-recourse investment in someone's legal claim. So if the claim doesn't work, people don't owe anything. Makes sense. So that's what Mighty was all about? So I was just consulting for him. I think one of the first big proposals I had for him was he had an underwriter, so the one responsible for evaluating all of the cases for investment, this legal claim. Where's the liability and what do the damages look like? So how much is the case worth? So liability is like, who's going to win or lose? And the damages are how much is this going to pay out based on how much the person was harmed? And I think one of the first proposals I had was like, one of the biggest unlocks in your business is going to be to teach your underwriter how to type <laughs> because he types with two fingers and he types about 15 words a minute. If we can give him 50 or 60 words a minute, he's going to be able to evaluate three times as many cases, which is actually your biggest bottleneck right now. So I got him to do a typing program, you know, once he learned how to type, absolutely loved. So just consulting for him, trying to help him in his business. I thought was really interesting. I had some time to kill and I was really excited about working with him specifically. But as I started learning about this industry and how big it was, how it was really had the opportunity to help a lot of people who were like my family, people who didn't know how to navigate something like the legal system, who didn't really even know what, like my family didn't know what like lawyers did. 
much less how to hire lawyers, work with lawyers, how to pay for lawyers. We're the kind of working class family that is at a disadvantage when we go into something like the legal system. Like me, Dylan, today, like when I have a problem, I'm fortunate that I can pick up the phone and call a lot of different people to get advice. My family growing up didn't have that, much less the money to like pay for things. Well, plus, even if you have that today, it's still complicated if you don't understand it. Like if you started talking about something outside of the legal stuff, like even when you first learned it, right? You're smart, but it's still difficult unless you do it all the time. So I'll go one step further. It's designed to not be understood. Right. It's designed intentionally to be opaque so that people can't understand it. Like the tax system. Yeah, exactly. The tax system. For instance, there are injury lawyers where you give away like 35 to 40% of your case on day one. Most of these lawyers, they just advertise because lawyers are the only ones who are legally able to advertise for legal services because lawyers have written those laws intentionally, <laughs> right? To box out competition. And so the whole legal system is kind of lawyers creating the laws for lawyers and then deciding the laws as judges eventually for the lawyers. So I saw this industry where you have this financial product that actually can be really powerful and beneficial for people like my family, but most people see it as like shady and repugnant. And so I thought there was this big opportunity to create something really meaningful and mission-driven. And so right before I left for Brazil, I actually plopped down, I think it was like 20 wireframes that I whipped up in Balsamic. I'm not a designer, so they're not pretty. <laughs> But they laid out like a platform idea for how we could create technology that would help people get fair and faster financial outcomes from the justice system using litigation finance as a vehicle. When I went to Brazil, I ended up working on that around the clock, full time from Brazil. And once it had some traction, started to take off, moved you know, back to the US to go all in on it full time. And he ended up leaving sort of leaving his litigation finance company or, or winding it down to come aboard as CEO of Mighty and I led growth for us. Your experience in Brazil, what was that like living with friends? I mean, because that, that's a totally different experience than what you had gone through as well. It was very far from what I expected. Our plan was to live there like one or two years, maybe more. One hypothesis was, well, I haven't really traveled anywhere other than like a summer abroad program in Spain one summer. So I had this viewpoint of, well, everyone in America thinks America is the best country, or at least they used to. They really should today. But everyone in Brazil thinks Brazil is the best country, I think. So like maybe they know something I don't. So I'd like to get a radically different life experience. If not now, when? I have a bunch of friends going down, people I also want to be surrounded by and learn from and bond with. Perhaps I can build a competitive advantage learning Portuguese and working in Brazil in tech. Ended up working remotely around the clock <laughs> in like a little like four by four, like a, a chair, like I constructed myself using like four by four planks. It was quite uncomfortable. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the experience ended up being a little, a little different than anticipated. And where did you say you were located in Brazil? I missed that when you said originally, like what city or what was the biggest city or town closest by? Yeah. So we're in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, and we lived in Ipanema, which was like on the beach in the South. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying like your working experience when you're working on Mighty at this time, like you thought there was going to be more collaboration with your other roommates as far as work and stuff, but really you're just kind of siloed in a room. So even though you're in Brazil, it's not as much fun as you maybe thought you were going to have. Yeah, but I loved it. I had purpose. I had meaning. I was so excited about what we were working on at Mighty. Yeah. So work-wise, it was great, but just like friendship and relationship-wise, it was still like everyone 
kind of selling off you because I mean obviously you came back early for a reason, but was that kind of the summary of it? Well, I still spent a lot of time with my friends. Also, the other house had a few other entrepreneurs, and some of them become like lifelong friends. So my friend who spearheaded the whole you know everybody moved to Brazil movement here, he had had a couple guys that had come to his pickup artist seminars <laughs> who came down to Brazil at the same time. And they're both very now successful tech entrepreneurs. Uh, one just sold his company to Salesforce. He was in my wedding, lifelong friend. Uh, I introduced him to his wife here in Austin, where he also moved down from New York City, and they just had a baby last week. The other is another lifelong friend who I had met through them. It was like a repeat founder, sold a company to Google. And so we did spend a lot of time like getting to know each other and bonding and reading and exploring Brazil. But I think to my wife's chagrin, she thought we were both not going to really be working or exploring things in Brazil. And, and then I was just spending 10 hours a day in our spot in Ipanema, just on my computer, which I suppose was just an omen of things to come since that's what I do today as well. <laughs> okay. So then you move back and you're moving back. Why? Because you want just for, oh well, yeah, just tell me more specifically, like what was the reason? Was it you wanted to work more on Mighty with your co-founder there or what? I think it was a push and a pull. Living in Brazil is very challenging. I think we had a viewpoint that we we're going to go to Brazil and we we're going to integrate into the culture. It's a very challenging culture to integrate into, at least from my end of one experience. One, there aren't a whole lot of expats in Rio. Brazil has a reciprocity policy when it comes to visas and citizenship and stuff like that. So they just copy whatever the policy is of the other country. America, it's obviously very hard to get a visa to come to America. And that means it's very hard for an American to get a visa and to stay there for a while in Brazil. So there's just not a whole lot of people who aren't Brazilians in Rio. And with Brazilians, there's like a, in Rio, Cariocas, I don't want to say like xenophobia, but there's a little bit of like insularity where they just didn't feel from our experiences that it was very easy to like make meaningful relationships with people. Brazil's interesting, like it's the only South American country that speaks Portuguese. Right? So they have their own language, very much their own culture. They're a little bit of like an insular society compared to, I think, other parts of South America. I mean, there's so many incredible things about Rio and Brazil as a country, but that was really challenging. So over time, we felt like we just weren't getting a meaningful cultural experience. It felt very much like still living in the West, which wasn't something I anticipated. I want an experience that felt a little bit more like when you go to Japan. And you feel like you're in a whole different universe, you know, a whole different like divergent evolution of human culture, whereas Brazil is distinctly Western. We weren't able to make a lot of like close friends and relationships other than the people that we'd already come down with that we were spending more time with. And just not living in a first world country where you speak the language perfectly wears on you. Very hard to get stuff done in Brazil. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of having to pay people off, a lot of having to wait for things that usually don't take a lot of time to wait for. There's not a whole lot of infrastructure that we have here in the U.S., things like delivery, Amazon. In Rio, they don't really have vegetables. <laughs> that can wear on you over time if you're used to eating vegetables. So eventually we just said, okay, this was an incredible experience. We're leaving with tons of profound and deep friendships that we've built with the people that we went down with that we got to know a lot better. We'll remember this for the rest of our life, but ready to move home. And plus, I only know because I'm looking at a profile picture of you on LinkedIn. It's like you stand out probably compared to their complexion, I would imagine, huh? 
I mean, I also, I learned Portuguese in a few weeks because I already knew Spanish using the Pimsleur method. It was actually really interesting was learning language, not through school, but learning it on your own. So when I learned Spanish, I learned it in school. So I learned it reading and writing first and foremost, speaking secondarily. Uh, and you know, I did a study abroad program that really accelerated my Spanish language development. Uh, with Portuguese, I just learned it through speaking. So I used the Pimsleur method where you listen to it and you just repeat it. And then when I got there, I was actually speaking to people. So I could speak it much better than I could speak Spanish, but I couldn't really read and write it at all. <laughs> so we knew the language and can get around, but you just, just weren't able to like integrate into the culture at all and build like really deep, meaningful relationships with locals. It was all very sort of surface level. And over time, that got really tired. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, because you're paler, right? And you have red hair. I'm half Jewish and I'm a very rare strawberry blonde Jew. So right. yeah. Yeah. So even look like versus if all of them are dark haired and dark complexion, right? So that, I mean, another cultural barrier, if you will, even if you know Portuguese and whatnot, but it's just one extra thing that kind of makes it a little bit more difficult, it seems like. So let's just wrap up about talking about Mighty and, you know, your entrepreneurial experience here. So I moved back to New York City and spent the next five and a half years there building Mighty before leaving to start Mindbloom. Mighty was a wild ride. Whereas with Mindbloom, the whole experience has felt largely like rolling a boulder downhill where you know there have been some key learnings and changes and strategies that have been more effective than others but fundamentally like the core thesis has just worked as expected at mighty we're on the brink of death multiple times made massive game changing pivots to the company did multiple rifts like layoffs had multiple things that we decided to do where our board said, if you do this, you will kill the company. And then we did it and saved the company. It was really interesting building with a co-founder. He has a lot of strengths and weaknesses. I have a lot of strengths and weaknesses. And we have like very different styles that I also think it made it both interesting and fun, but also challenging to build with another person, especially another person who, unlike say my first co-founder, who was already a friend, somebody who's more of like a business partner. And you know, we still talk and help each other all the time. It was more of like a business relationship than like a friend relationship, which I've come to learn is actually something I like in people I work with, where some people don't want to work with friends, right? They want things to be more uh, arm's length. So when I moved back, the core business that we started with was essentially building a tech-enabled legal funding broker. So we were helping people who wanted to get funding on their legal case they're in a car accident or a medical accident, or they slipped and fell, and they wanted an advance on their payout so that they could pay for like living expenses, rent, food for their family. So we were connecting those people with the people who finance cases and taking a cut. And we're building a tech platform around that. That was what we were doing off of like, I remember what it was, like $300,000 or $400,000 of like angel funding. And so we had a tiny little windowless office in the financial district of Manhattan I hired a team of like eight really smart, really ambitious people right out of college. And we essentially operated like a boiler room. We were on the phone all day with headsets, talking to clients. I was running all the relationships with the funders. You know, I'm like the most senior person at the company at the age of like 26 years old. <laughs> and it was really exciting. We had the whiteboard on the wall with like the thermometer, just trying to get to like this tiny amount of revenue to like prove this out. And ultimately in this really boiler room environment, we were able to get to like a certain level of success where we were able to go out and actually like raise a series A round of funding to build 
a P2P lending marketplace that was like the big idea that we were working towards proving out. When you think about the startup story where you know, big things have small beginnings, looking back, that was one of the most like, exciting, fun times of the company was starting from absolutely nothing other than some phones and pieces of paper and laptops and beginning to build what ended up becoming a really meaningful company that I built for five years and has been around for 10 now. And so why did you eventually leave? So the company had gone through multiple iterations and pivots. So we started as like a broker. Then we were building a P2P lending marketplace where like you, Austin, could come in and fund a legal claim. There were a lot of P2P lending marketplaces at that time that were absolutely taking off. Some of them had just gone public. But we started seeing that like the dynamics of the marketplace just weren't working. We were doing all of this work to package these cases. And then someone else was investing, but like we were barely making that much of a take rate against how expensive it was to acquire the cases, underwrite them. And it just it wasn't adding up to us. We couldn't get it to work. So we ended up pivoting that where we took all the software that we had built to process these cases ourselves and began selling it to the people that we were originally trying to disrupt, the legal funding companies. So that was my job to go out and tell these people, hey, remember all these press pieces about how you guys are taking advantage of people and we're going to disintermediate you? Well, we're actually wrong and now we want to support you and sell you software and support your businesses and help you be better. So that, that was fun. And then we started expanding the platform to support not just people doing the funding, but the doctors who are providing care to the plaintiffs. So these are like chiropractors, MRI centers, surgeons. Then we started supporting the lawyers who were supporting their cases. And then we raised a credit fund, so nine figures. So think about like a hedge fund within the company to finance all of those different people and businesses on our platform ourselves. So finance the plaintiffs who have the cases, the lawyers, the doctors, and the finance companies funding all of them. And eventually after I left the company, began actually going direct to plaintiffs before their case even starts to support them throughout the entire journey by providing all those services and financing themselves, which is what they're doing today. So about five and a half years in, I completed many, many tours of duty, gotten us through hundreds of millions of financing that we'd raised, become the market leader in our space. And there are you know, sort of a few factors. One is that my co-founder and I had very different styles and personalities. And I think we both felt like it would be best for the company if he could run it his way versus us like constantly running it two different ways. Two, the company was in a great place where we had hired out a team to do all the things that I had built for us and could just hand it over to other people. And three, I think a lot of people feel like they want to be the CEO. There's like a lot of benefits of being the non-CEO co-founder. One is that you get to leave <laughs> and don't have to sort of stick around with the ship. If you're the founding CEO and you leave, it's pretty dangerous. Like the new CEO who comes in doesn't have the same incentives, doesn't have the same vision. A lot of the data suggests that founding CEOs massively outperform hired CEOs. And a hired CEO like is incentivized with your board, like recap you out of the company. So founding CEOs really are incentivized to stick around for a long time. For the non-founding CEO, like once you've vested your equity, if the company is in a good place, it really makes sense for you oftentimes, especially if you don't have as much impact on the org as you used to when it was smaller, to go start your own thing. So I wanted to be founder and CEO of my own thing. I wanted to be a solo founder where I could build the culture and company my way. And I wanted to work in and build something in mental health because of you know, my family's history with being obliterated by the mental health crisis. So for those reasons, it was an easy decision. So I left Mighty, began exploring 
concepts in mental health, which you know inevitably led me to starting MindBloom. Well, thank you for bringing us full circle on it. Yeah, thanks, Austin. I love this deep dive. I've been on a lot of podcasts and I've never gone this deep into my career story with somebody. It feels almost like I'm on the other side of the career story job interview that we put every candidate through in later stages. Now you know their pain, right? Oh, this is fun. Maybe it's because I like my own story. <laughs> I'm just kidding there. But real quick, when you said, you know, you left Mighty, you were in New York, right? I guess you, originally you're saying you did do Mind Bloom in New York, but then eventually went to Austin, Texas, right? So you started it up still in the same city. Yeah, I started Mind Bloom a year before COVID as a remote first company. Perfect. Yeah, no, I remember that from the first part of the story. Well, thank you for going through all the details again. I think we can all learn things from your experiences here. Even if it was that first one, and I, I brought it up before and I'll bring it up again, your agency experience where you know it sounded great as an intern. And then once you actually worked there, it fucking sucked. I always just try to remind people if they're in a position right now where they're in a job that, that sucks or their boss is a dick or whatever. When you started Mindbloom, you learned from that. So the best thing you can do is at least learn from that experience and realize you don't want to do that in your own company when you start your own company. So as long as you're learning from that, it might suck now while you're in that position, but just realize that's why a lot of people end up starting their own companies. They get tired of that, tired of being told what to do and for no logical reason and whatnot. So hopefully that kind of, it sounded like maybe that motivated you at Mindbloom to start the company culture and start something that can help other people. I don't, I don't know if you have any other words of wisdom or anything on that topic you might want to share before we get off the call. One thing I share with people when they're thinking about starting another company or their first company that I learned from Mighty, it's also relevant to working in the talent agency and that soul-crushing experience, is oftentimes when people are starting companies, they think a lot about the business opportunity, as they should, but they don't think a couple levels deeper into like what their day-to-day will be like. So for instance, at Mighty, one of the challenges was that our customers were these rough around the edges, let's call it small businesses, right? These are like ambulance chaser lawyers. These are people where when I started Mighty, I cold called hundreds of lawyers. I got on a plane. I went to a conference where I was like 20 years younger than everybody. I was like 25 or six. And I just approached people to like ask them questions and like try to figure out how to help them. And I had multiple people say, fuck you, get the fuck away from me to me. And it blew my mind. I was like, what? What? Like, I'm, I'm just like approaching you at a conference and saying hi, and you're telling me to F off. And, you know, that was like a, a leading indicator of what was to come working in this personal injury space with a lot of personal injury lawyers you see on billboards and commercials, injury doctors and litigation finance companies supporting them. Some incredible, great people in the space. But there's a reason that these spaces have repugnant reputations, like some of the people rough around the edges. And those were very challenging customers to support. Sometimes they would yell at our team. Sometimes they would act unethically. And sometimes you just question like, why am I working so hard to support somebody that maybe isn't someone I'd like to support? And similarly, when you think about the kind of like teams you might build and lead, thinking really critically about like, okay, if I build this company, do I want to have the kind of company where we're going to need like a boiler room type sales team? And I'm going to need to build and lead that. I might actually really enjoyed doing that several times we built sales teams. But I have seen instances where people think about the business opportunity, but then they go in and they're really working it. And like the kind of people they're hiring, the kind of people they're working for, the kind of things they're doing day to day aren't the kind of things that they actually love doing and are really good at. So that's one piece of advice I give people. And something I thought a lot about when starting Mindbloom, where I had the opportunity to work with 
mental health care providers and mental health care patients. The patients can be challenging at times. They're mental health care patients. My mom, my sister are mental health care patients. They're challenging folks. But overall, it's sort of refreshing the kind of people that we get to support compared to some I have in the past. Yeah. And I think one way to kind of figure out what your day-to-day is going to be like is kind of do the things that you were talking about when you're talking about talking to your fraternity brothers about what they actually do in their careers. That's what I did a lot in college. I shadowed a lot of different people in the real estate industry because I figured I wanted to do that. So being able to understand, okay, something sounds glamorous, like a lot of your guys who went into financial banking out of college, but then they really say they hate their lives. So sometimes you have to dig a little bit further, even though the title might sound great, like businessman, make sure you understand what you're going to actually get into. Well, I guess that's it on my end. I appreciate you doing the interview here again, Dylan. If someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? I'm just at Dylan at mindbloom.com. Or you could find me on LinkedIn where I post frequently. Uh, and then mindblooms at mindbloom.com. Well, thank you again, Dylan, for sharing your story. Yeah, thanks, Austin. This was a blast. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now.